Are you a person who longs to know God? Are you, do you search the scriptures daily to understand who this Jesus is, what God is about, what is life about? You know, what? why is all of this going on? Why do people die? All the questions are answered in the scriptures in a glorious way, in a wonderful way, in a way that can give you the picture of glory and an eternity that the apostle saw, said, who suffered greatly, mostly persecution for, for the name of Jesus Christ, who said, I reckon, I reckon that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed to us. Hello, my dear listeners. This is That They May Know a podcast devoted to the glory of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. We're presently uh, looking at the discipleship series called The Art of Discipleship. We Tonight will be in John chapter 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer, and the name of it is The Glory of Knowing God. What does it mean to know Jesus, and what are the ramifications, the implications of knowing Jesus Christ? We'll begin, let's begin at 1 through 3. Now, the setting here is the night in which Jesus was betrayed. He goes into the upper room. He spends time teaching the disciples, washes his feet. All kinds of teaching goes on in chapters of John 13, 14, 15, 16. And then he goes out into the night. It's nighttime. And on his way to Gethsemane, where he'll pray for three hours, he'll sweat blood. Three times he'll come back to him, tell them, could you not wait with me for one hour? At the end of time, he's brought into custody. He goes to the or the mockery of a trial, and eventually he's uh, crucified on a cross. So this is what's before him. And <clears throat> in the middle there of the, that talk and going to Gethsemane, he stops and he and he prays. And he begins that prayer by saying, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. You granted him authority over all humanity so that he may give eternal life to all those you have given him. So the hour had come. This is the hour. The hour uh, when the Son of God would be looked upon, he would become a sacrifice for those for whom he would die, and he would be looked upon by God as the sin-bearer. He would take the place of sinners. This is hours before his death. As a man, he's God, but he's fully man as well. And as a man, he's facing the final hours of his human existence on earth. These words matter. All of Jesus' words matter because he's God. He's eternal God. Uh, These words matter as a man because he's facing death. He wasn't a kidder. Uh, He was full of joy. Um, But he wasn't like a man is when we think of a man who cuts up and you know, he, was, he lived a serious life. He was facing the most serious death anyone would ever face. And now he's at very close to that, very close. The hour has come, and 
these words are very serious. They should be taken seriously. This isn't just about an, a mental exercise that we're going to look at this and we're going to take apart all that he said just for the, some intellectual exercise. This is about knowing what was on Jesus' heart so that we can contemplate it, so that we can become, come close to God. So when he says glorify your son, that your son may glorify you, that word glory is a, is a, it's a big word. It's a, a word that we need to understand. And for that, I want to think about Isaiah verse uh, 6, 1 through 3 we'll look at. And it says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim, which were mighty angels, stood above him, and each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Notice the humility of the angels covering themselves with four-sixths of their wings. And they're not like we are, you know, if you have it, flaunt it, show who you are, pride, all of the vanity of this world. No, they're holy, humble, holy angels and humble angels. And, and in that humility, uh, they're, saying, they're saying something. It says in verse 3, And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I don't want to just skip over the Lord of hosts. That's Jehovah Sabaoth. That is the Lord of the heavenly army. It's an army. You know, in this age, in the ages that have been, um, there has been a war going on. Men fell into sin because Satan fell into sin. Lucifer, the great, uh, greatest of the angels. Um, and because of that sinfulness of the angelic host, there's also two-thirds of the angels that didn't fall and they make up the Lord's army. And all of that is there. And, and, and these angels are acknowledging his holiness. They're acknowledging he is Jehovah Sabaoth, or the I Am of the heavenly host, the heavenly army. The whole earth is full of his glory. So three times they say, emphasizing it, that he's holy. He's holy. He's holy. And in his holiness, you would think then that it would say the whole earth is full of his holiness. <laughs> and it, it's full, they say, of his glory, which is a way of us showing to us that God's glory is the manifestation of his holiness. The whole earth is full of his glory. So as we think through this word holiness, I want us to consider the idea that it is a manifestation which comes all through John 17. It's a manifestation, a revelation, that God is holy. In John 17, 4 and 5, Jesus continues and said, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Jesus revealed God's holiness by his obedience as a man. He respected the Father's will all the days of his earthly existence. This is a, a very important thought that as a man, which this is God as a man revealing how God is 
how man would be if God could do it. That's who Jesus Christ is. He's, uh, he's showing us what a man is like when God is inside. And so holiness, uh, which we said, I, I glorified you on the earth. I revealed your holiness is what he's saying. Holiness is described by the New Testament word, which is hagios, properly different, unlike others. So the fundamental core meaning of the word hagios is, is different. Thus, a temple in the first century was hagios, holy, because it was different from all other buildings. And that's uh, the Greek scholar Barclay. So then in verse 5, he goes on and says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Look at, think about it. Throughout eternity, each person of the Trinity valued the other two persons of the Trinity for who he really is. In an eternal existence, without time, outside of time, bigger than time, infinitely bigger than time, the, the Trinity was full of glory. It was manifested to the other persons and it was beheld by the only person who matters, the self-existent, eternal, always existent God. Can't really get it in our minds, can't really contemplate it to the full. It, it's an idea to us, but it's one given us by God to contemplate who he is so that we might know him. This is about knowing Jesus, John chapter 7, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. So the first thing that we're, we're looking at is w what it means to know Jesus. We're getting just a glimpse of it. And then second, what knowing, what knowing Jesus means in particular in, in, in the matter, uh, we'll see, of John 17.3. According to Jesus, eternal life is the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ. John 17.3, this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now what Jesus meant when he says eternal life is knowing the only true God is actually the knowledge of intimacy. In Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1 it says, and I quote, and Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from Jehovah. I mean, she knew in that state that, of course, there was an act that was committed. There was intimacy between her and, and Adam. Uh, but behind that is the God of creation, the God who is in control of all things and who gave her this child. We, we say, God, thank God. God be blessed when a child is born. Those of us who are, are godly-minded, who are righteous uh, by biblical standard. So the point here is that Adam and Eve became intimately involved, as we understand in marriage, and brought forth a child. And it's that word, that concept, that Jesus meant when he talked about knowing when he said, this is eternal life, that they might know you, be intimate with you, an intimate knowledge. 
the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Thirdly, to know Jesus is to become distinct from the world. It is to become holy. So we become intimate, then, and, and at the same time we become holy. John seventeen six through 11 says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believe that you sent me. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. My my holiness has been manifest. That's that's me putting that in. And, And verse 11, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. He was going to the Father. His life was coming to an end. So there's this manifestation of the name. He says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. So there's this out of the world, which are these men that he's walked with, his disciples, not just the twelve, but there are many disciples. There was like a hundred in the upper room thereabouts. Now they have come to know 120 now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you there's this connection between jesus christ and the father and there's a belief on the part of the his disciples his followers that he had come from the fathers for the words which you gave me i've given to them there's this there's this mediation between this man who's the messiah who's the anointed one who is the eternal god for the words which you gave me, I've given to them, and they received them. So there's a giving and there's a receiving. And truly and truly understood that I came forth from you. There's a belief and an understanding that this man had come from the Father, from God. And they believe that you sent me. There's belief, there's faith that's been transpiring on the part of the ones who follow Jesus Christ. I ask on their behalf. Now there's an asking I do not ask on behalf of the world. There's a separation between the two. There's those who belong to Jesus through faith and belief and receiving what God is giving in Christ, and there's the world that's not part of this. But of those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and there's this this relationship, this sharing between the Father and the Son, and I have been glorified in them. My, my, manifest, my holiness is manifest in them. I'm no longer in the world. He's, he's done. He's going to the Father, and yet they themselves are in the world. So there's this separation. Now, I want to look at that from the standpoint of Exodus 19, 1 through 6, where they've come out, they've come out of Egypt, and they wind up uh, in the third month, at the mountain, and Moses is going to speak for God. And it says in the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai, Mount Sinai, when they set out from Rephidim,
They came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. And there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Moses sent up, <clears throat> went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I, ha- what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Deuteronomy adds actually uh, an element that's not here in Exodus chapter 19. There it says, This day the Lord your God commands you, and this is at the second giving of the law, you do you to do these statutes and ordinances. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart, with all your, all your soul. You have today declared the Lord to be your God, and you would walk in his ways and keep his statutes, his commandments and his ordinances, and listen to his voice. And the Lord has today declared you to be his people, a treasured possession, as he promised you, and that you should keep all his commandments. And he shall set you high above all nations which he has made for praise, fame, and honor, and that you shall be a consecrated people to the Lord your God as he has spoken. So there is this setting apart from all the other nations. Not that the nations wouldn't be included, but they're the witness. They're the people of God. They're the people set apart by God. In this, I want us to consider in understanding that there's the world and there's the people of God. Just that one main point that to know Jesus is to become distinct from the world. As John tells us in his epistle, love not the world. And the fourthly, to know God is to be united with him. So there's a distinction of coming out of the world, being separate from it, and then there's also to be united with God. The end, the end result of being united to God through a knowledge of him is to become holy, wholly separated to him which results in becoming like him, which is to share in the unity that God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit share. John seventeen eleven and 12. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. And then in verse 12, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. I, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Now this is really clear, that while he was with them, he was keeping them, and he was keeping them in God's name. The name of God is the manifestation or revelation of someone's character in the Greek. That's what a name is, as distinguishing them from all others. Thus, praying in the name of Christ means to pray as directed or authorized by him. 
bringing the revelation that flows out of being in his presence. Praying in Jesus' name, therefore, is not a religious formula just to end prayers or get what we want. No, no, no. Name can also mean in Greek authority or cause. So there's behind the name, there's the character, there's the authority, there's the will, there's so much in the name of God. And name, which name? There's so many names. It's 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 like trying to, you know, swallow the ocean. I mean, there's so much just mentally thinking about the presence of God. And that's what we would expect. I mean, if God is expressing himself, if God is talking about who he is, I mean, how do you... How do you get in the infinite? I mean, how do you, you can't. Uh, but we can be lay prostrated at our feet as we contemplate these things. And this is where it should bring us. To contemplate that as Jesus walked with these men and he means it towards all his disciples, and that's coming up, you know, that he was keeping them in his name. In all that God is, in his character and in his person, you know, so this whole, whole matter of being holiness, separated from the world, separated unto God, it's all about who God is. It's all about intimacy with God in the person of Jesus Christ. It's all about becoming intimate. You know, I, I've led many men through many studies and discipleship, and whenever I use that word intimate, men kind of back away. You know, we're not talking about intimacy between a man and a woman, even though I brought that up that that's what knowing God is. But it's not in that any moral, sexual sense. We're talking about knowledge. We're talking about the intimacy between a man and a woman apart from the sexual act. We're talking about the knowing each other intellectually, emotionally, seeing how the other person, you know, the, the wife or the husband react in different circumstances, being there to help them and by being able to help them well because we understand them. All that's included in that is what he's talking about here. In verse 11, it says, they may be one as we are. It says, uh, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one as we are. That's a big phrase. In 20 and 21 of this same high priestly prayer, it says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe through their word. That comes all the way down to us. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Wow. I mean, he's connecting something here that I want to I want to test and talk about the implications of this because this is big for the church. It's big for discipleship. It's big for being a disciple, you know, understanding who we are as a people. I do not ask on behalf of these alone what did they, that they may be one, even as we are. For those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Now, this is, this is trans, actually, this is going beyond generations, one generation, if we believe that all are involved, that they may all be one, that the world 
may believe. Or we could look at it as one generation, those of the apostles and the, those whom the, the, the apostles taught in that generation. And, you know, when, when persecution came and the apostles stayed, they stayed in Jerusalem, and then they were scattered throughout, and the people who were scattered, it says, went out preaching the word. So they went out preaching the word, but they also went out in packs, undoubtedly, and in families and in, in, in groups. And as they went out, there was pockets and groups of people that believed. And there was this unity, meant to be unity. And wherever there are Christians in the world, they, those Christians are to project the unity of God. That's what it says here. So in verses 22 and 23, he says, The glory or manifested holiness which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity, made complete, brought to the final end of completion is the word, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Well, that's, that's huge. That is big, verses 22 and 23. So this manifested holiness, that God is holy, and God is holy because he's so separate from a sinful world. There's no sin in God. There's no anything unholy or ungodly. And God is love. I mean, it's hard to see love in this present world. I mean, when people are doing the horrendous things, even even if it's not murder and the worst things that we can think, even the divisions within families and arguments, and just think about holidays and what that can be. And God is nothing like this. Nothing like this. Only complete, 100% infinite and eternal, holy, holy unity and being of the same mind and just beyond anything we can experience, no backbiting, no gossip, nothing like that. And there is this that the people of God are meant to, to, to reflect. Think about it. The glory manifest holiness which you have given me, I've given to them that they may be one. So he, he takes us out of the world and a transformation takes place. We understand that we are a new creation in Christ. Old things are passing away. All things are becoming new. There's a new heart. There's a, there's, a, there's a new person. And in that new creation, in that new person, a person who's been given a heart to love God and love Jesus, there's a unity with God, absolutely, and there's meant to be a growing unity with one another. I and them and you and me, that they may be made complete, perfected, brought to completion in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. So here comes the question, does our unity properly reflect the unity of the Trinity? Does our unity properly reflect our union with God in Christ? Now, I'm, I'm not trying to you know, do this to be critical, uh, but there are 19 that I, that I was looking up my, someone may come with different numbers, but 19 different and distinct Baptist denominations with many more differing beliefs with each church of the various denominations. That doesn't, that's not completely unified. That's just Baptist. 
and then you have Presbyterians and on and on through all the Protestant denominations which separated from the Holy Roman Catholic Church. In short, you know, the, the, the church is uh, not a really good reflection. Now, the church isn't just everyone who says they're a Christian. The church is uh, the people who are born again, who are truly uh, Christ's people through what I've just been describing and being taken out of the world, giving a new heart, people by faith who love and receive Jesus Christ, who believe all the things that he says. Now those people, those people who call themselves Christian, who profess that Christianity through a transforming life, a changing life, those people are meant to be one, even as God is. Now I don't think... He's calling perfection, certainly not perfection in this life. But the question still stands, how good are we doing? Are we getting on our faces and and Christian leaders, and are we seeking to come together? You know, there's only one Bible. And the Bible rightly understood when a person really takes the time, not read into it, but read out of it what the words mean. Just, just. Reflect, consider, understand what does God mean by what God is saying. You know, the problem isn't with God. He wrote a word that is perfectly understandable. He wrote a word which is glorious. The problem comes in in the flesh. Just spend some time in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2. You know, who is the wise man? Who is the scribe? Who is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? so that by the foolishness of the message preached, men might be saved. You know, there is a Holy Spirit that's given to the children of God that makes the the Word of God understandable. But if people don't walk in the Spirit, if they walk carnally, selfishly, full of pride and jealousy and all of those fleshly desires which we are told to flee from, to be changed by the Spirit of God... And if we walk in the Spirit, the unity, I believe, could be far greater than it is in the world today among true believers, true Christians. Fifthly, to know God is to behold His glory. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory, manifested holiness that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. This is a big verse. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory, manifested holiness, that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. That uh, phrase, see my glory, In the Greek means to behold, experience, discern, partake of. It's from the word theamomai, which is to gaze or contemplate. Gaze on for the purpose of analyzing, discriminating. It's the root of the English term theater, i.e. where people concentrate on the meaning of an action. 
performance. We watch movies, we see stories, we see how people interact with one another and how they behave and how they think and how they act. And then we contemplate, what was that all about? Why did he do this? Why did they do that? How did that happen? And that's contemplating the actions of people for the purpose of of knowing them, knowing why they did what they did. That's what we do. We're, we're a race of people, and we interact. No one wants to live on planet Earth alone. I mean, some people really hate other people, and, and, and there's all kinds of hatred in the world, but the fact is loneliness is horrendous when you're there really alone. And people experience it, and it's not good. We're not meant to be alone. We're meant to be. It's not good for man to be alone, God said. And so he made Eve, and it turned into an entire race. The, the purpose here, the glory of God isn't, you know, when we see the new Jerusalem and, and, and the universe goes out of existence and comes back into existence, you know, there's no sun, we're told. The, the, the universe is filled with God, the light of God. But this isn't really talking about glory in the sense of light. It's talking about something you can contemplate. It's something that you can think about. We've been talking about God being manifest in his holiness, his separateness in the person of Christ. If we really want to contemplate on God's manifest glory, we contemplate Jesus Christ. We contemplate his person. Let's think about that for a minute. So here's an eternal God who's perfect, as the scripture says. He's complete. He's never changing. He's, he, he doesn't have to, why would he change when he's perfect? He knows everything. You know, the, he, 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 he has all power. He's good. He's infinite. He's eternal. All the non-communicable attributes of God, that's what they're called because we can't partake in those. We can't be infinite. We can't know all things. We don't have all power. We're not meant to. We're not God. There's only one God. Anything else is idolatry. God will always be God and we will always be made in his image, those of us who have received Jesus Christ. As we contemplate this infinite God, we then have to contemplate or we should contemplate the love of God. That God who did not need anything, he's complete. There's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's no loneliness. There's perfect harmony. There's joy. There's peace. There's contentment beyond anything we could imagine. This same God desired in the beginning to create. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What beginning? The beginning of everything that we know. The material universe. The universe that came from nothing. He spoke it into existence. And thus it says, and he said, and God said, and there was light. And there was animals, and there was an earth, and there was stars and heavens, and all of this creation that took place came from nothing by God. For what reason? He wanted to give a bride to his son. He wanted to make something for the son. And he made it in such a way that people could contemplate and understand and experience the same love that the Father has for the Son. That's how this prayer is concluded in verses 25 and 26. O righteous Father, although, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you. This is Jesus praying. 
and these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. Wow. The love with which you loved me may be in them. You understand what what is being spoken here. God makes known the name, again, the character, the will of God, who he is in his person. And he will make it known, he says, so that the love with which you loved me. How does the Father love the Son? The Father does not love the Son with unconditional love. There's no need for that. The Son is perfect in all his ways. The the Father glories in this. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He's perfectly pleased with the Son. The Son doesn't ever do anything but please the Father. The Son is God. He is eternal. Eternally coming forth from the Father. Don't uh, ask me to explain it. I can't. I accept it as true because God is true and he cannot lie. God is is that good. When we think about someone who's always tells the truth, wow, that, that's good. So how does the father love the son? He loves the son as someone would love someone who's perfectly good and perfectly loving. And he goes on and says, so that the love with which you love me, the father loved the son, may be in them. We might experience that kind, that love to that degree. And that Jesus himself would be in us. The love of the Father would be in. The love the Father has for the Son would be in us. And that Jesus himself would be in us. This is what we're contemplating. We're contemplating a God who in order to get there, in order to get us there, had to sacrifice the Son. You see, God is righteous and he's holy and he can't put up with sin. He can't tolerate sin. He has to punish sin. If um, you know, if you went to court because your spouse or because a family ma- member was murdered in a horrible way, and worse things, bad things we don't want anyone to talk about here happened, you went to court and the judge came out and said, well, you know, it's bad, but I mean, he's done a lot of good and, you know, let's, let's overlook at this time. There's no person on earth to think that was a righteous judge, a good judge, a judge that they they would hate that judge. They would judge that judge and they would be right in saying this is not justice, this is evil. God is anything but like that and he judges his people according to a perfect standard. And when I say his people, I mean the people he's created, all people on the face of the earth. Now in order to make that right, He had to judge them. But in order to forgive, because it would take an eternity for us to carry out the judgment because God is eternal. And besides that, men are incapable of repentance. They're incapable of loving God. Uh, The the standard is, you know, what's the first great commandment? God said, thou shalt love and 
Deuteronomy chapter 6, you shall love the Lord thy God with all thy mind, heart, soul, and strength. Shall you tell me what person you know, including yourself, that you love God that way? You always put God before yourself. You never consider anything without first considering God. Is this God's will? Oh, God doesn't want me to live in a mansion. He doesn't want me to have this car. Maybe for you in particular, if he said that. God wants me to be sick right now or whatever it is. You're okay with that. You're just perfectly okay because, see, God is all-knowing. He's all-loving. He's a good God. And so, therefore, what really matters to me is God. Where are the people that are like that before they've been saved, before they've come to faith in Jesus Christ? How does a person put his faith in Jesus Christ, be in a condition where he hates God, and according to Romans chapter 3, it says there are none who seek after God. Just that verse right there. And it goes into all this horrendous behavior. There's none who seek after God. In Romans chapter 8, it talks about it's impossible. People who uh, do not love God, they're incapable and unable to submit to the law of God. That's what it says in Romans chapter 8. So a people who are incapable and unwilling to submit to God, how then do they receive the words of Jesus Christ? They can't. It's impossible. You can't reconcile the two. Except that God shows grace on some. All are lost. The whole entire race was lost in Adam, Romans chapter 5. What we do is we beget sinners. Sinners who hate God, don't want any control in their life by God, do not want to be judged by God. So at the end, when it's all over, this distance that there is between men and God, that men hate God, all of that ungodliness had to be placed on the Son so that the Son could die for those sins so that whosoever would believe in him might be forgiven. It's a trade-off. It's a trade-off of grace, for by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. No man will boast No man will ever be able to say in heaven, I chose Jesus Christ out of the goodness of my heart. That's impossible. You chose Jesus out of the goodness that that replaced the evil. When you became a new creation in Christ, that grace allowed you the freedom to receive Jesus Christ. Now, you know why I'm saying these things? Not to push any particular belief or doctrine. I'm saying these things so that we might know that salvation is of God. It's not inherent in men. That's ridiculous. That's ludicrous. And it's unbiblical. Salvation is a work of God in the heart. It's a work of God on the cross. It's a sacrifice of the Son, and we don't want to belittle that sacrifice in any way, manner, or any manner. What we want to do is we want to understand the grace of God for what it is. We want to understand the glory of God, that God in His goodness manifested His glory in holiness in Jesus Christ. And He manifested His love for those who are his chosen people, as it once was Israel, the remnant, and today given to any person in any nation in all the world who received Jesus Christ as Lord and as Savior. As many as believed in him became, gave them the authority 
to become the sons of God. All those who believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the dead shall be saved. There's no other name given among men under heaven whereby man must be saved. It's only in Jesus Christ. And the glory here, the glory stated in prayer by Jesus is the glory of knowing God and through knowing him. And these have known that you sent me. There's a knowing. They know that the Father sent the Son. And I have made your name known. All who God is, is known in the word of God. And I will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Are you a child of God? Are you a person who longs to know God? Are you, do you search the scriptures daily to understand who this Jesus is, what God is about, what is life about? You know, what, why is all of this going on? Why do people die? All the questions are answered in the scriptures in a glorious way, in a wonderful way, in a way that can give you the picture of glory and an eternity that the apostle saw, said, who suffered greatly, mostly persecution for, for the name of Jesus Christ, who said, I reckon, I reckon that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed to us. The glory, the manifest holiness of God, that he's separate from a sinful world. He sent his son to separate a person out from that sinful world and to to set them up in a place, the new Jerusalem, the heavens, for an eternity in sharing the person of Jesus Christ, sharing the Father's love, sharing the Trinity in holiness and considering for all eternity how glorious God is, how loving and giving and benevolent God is. This is something I long for, every Christian does in their heart, And if you ever receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you will too. This is Joe Durso with That They Might Know. I think we talked about that today. That you may know his glory. That you may know the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you have a blessed day and I hope you consider the things that are said here very carefully.